This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have JD Work. You might know him on Twitter as at Hostile Spectrum. And today we are talking about offensive operations in information security. So we, we kind of wanted to talk about this as a part of our kind of review. So we, the, the podcast has been going on for almost a decade now. And, you know, when we started off in 2013, 2012, things have become a little more different, a little weirder, uh, a little more aggressive, however you want to describe it. And so we, we started off with a conversation with Matt DeVos on the big trends. Today we have JD Work. And then in the following weeks, we will have Joe Slovic on ransomware and then Sarah Turn on information operations. So kind of a big review, looking at the big questions, thinking about how things have changed from 2012, 2013 to 2020. So please welcome JD Work. How's it going? Great. Thanks very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk with some uh, interesting folks and uh, especially someone that's managed to lock down so many of my fr- good friends on your pod before. Yeah. So let me, oh, let's, let's first go through the disclaimer. So you, obviously your views are your views and they don't necessarily represent DOD. Is that, that's correct, right? So this yes. Year- so the views and opinions expressed here are my own do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any agency of the U.S. government or other organization. Um, and I'm pretty sure they would disown many of those views. So <laughs> as we say. So I want to maybe start off with like this very meta questions. So it's kind of a two-parter. A, where are we today in offensive information security? And then how do you define that and how do you structure that analysis? Because I think, I think for the common audience or for people who aren't in the industry or in, aren't in the field, it's very much, you know, kind of Mr. Robot style, you know, popping shells, you know, exfilling data, or even sort of the stereotypical, like 2016, what happened in 2016 during the presidential election. But, you know, you know, getting away from those stereotypes, you know, where are we today in information security? And, you know, you know, how do you structure that analysis? What, you know, what got us here, basically? Sure. Well, I look at this uh, from the lens that we're living the future that we always knew was coming. So back when we used to call this information warfare, we did a lot of work in the 1990s around offensive cyber operations. It was mostly theoretic. We outlined options. We outlined types of operations. We outlined the things that could be done at some future state with some future capability. These once theoretic options are now the routine stuff of everyday planning. And they're the things that are observed commonly in the threat environment by industry as different actors overseas, predominantly, execute operations against our industry, against our government in ways that uh, directly go towards our sources of national power. This, while it was expected, it's kind of caught us on the back foot um, for institutionally and at the, the policy level for decades now because the disconnects in the conversation between the different layers of industry, between the different layers of government. 
we're also discovering that our anticipation of those futures was very much closer to the realities than we thought were possible when this was just considered the stuff of fiction. So I, I always start out with William Gibson's Neuromancer, which uh, everyone should have read, but the backstory there to set the stage for one of the characters, which wasn't even a lead character, discussed an offensive cyber operation involving special operations infiltration into Russia in order to destroy command and control nodes in some future conflict. This was written in 1983-1984 timeframe, right? published in 1984, and it was written on a typewriter. The author had no way of knowing, as he was writing this, that the first thing that we would call the U.S. offensive cyber program was actually being developed on order of President Reagan with the objective of creating a capability to hold at risk exactly that type of target. It took us nearly three and a half decades to understand that reality, to understand that there was a live capability being developed in a heavily classified, heavily secretive world to hold targets at risk through offensive cyber operations. It's only now partially glimpsed after some very serious academic work to declassify this history and to subject that to real scholarship. One of my good friends, Craig Weiner, over at George Mason University, did some excellent work on that. I take a step back and I look at this space largely through the level of operational art, where tactical actions are sequenced in deliberate campaigns orchestrated to achieve strategic effects. This isn't a common frame for most folks in the space. There's a lot of scary smart talent focused on the technical and tactical levels of the binary and the network, and no small number of commentators who want to talk about policy and the sweeping concepts of strategy. But typically we find the unit analysis in the space is a single incident, right? This is a too narrow focus on a small number of very well-known public cases comprising a single incident at a time. I have a challenge, uh, problem with that. I have a challenge looking at it from that lens because this omits the wider scope of action that led to those incidents and misses the complexities of interactions across the ecosystem. This thing we call cyberspace, this consensual hallucination or not, is the most complex thing ever built by human hands. And, you know, as, as we've seen from some excellent scholarship quite a while back, it was built through the idea of these small pieces loosely joined. As we know, each one of these small pieces and each one of the interconnections that join these pieces to the larger stack creates a new attack surface. And we've increasingly welded these pieces into new parts of our society, into our daily lives. We're creating a tremendous engine of economic value, of uh, transformative value for the lives of our people. You look at things like the pandemic, this is a very different experience because of telecommunications availability because of uh, things like Zoom, because of the entire change in how we've gone about dealing with being locked in our houses effectively. That value is incredible, but it's also creating a range of effects that can be introduced through the compromise of confidentiality, integrity, or availability that have ever greater utility in that military and strategic sense. And this, this, this vulnerability, this scope of action is really the, the place that we come to that starts changing what, that thing we expected in the, the prior paleo future into a very different sort of operational reality for us today. That's kind of interesting, the, the idea of scope of action, that because it almost seems in, in, this, in this space that, that action is very much limited. For instance, the government is limited according to federal law, right? So it, it can only do so many things. And then we kind of expand it and look at FireEye or Kaspersky 
So when we look at scope of action, can you sort of parse this down? Because it almost seems like, you know, there's a certain set of actors that can be offensive and those are mostly states. And then there's a certain set of actors that aren't offensive in a traditional sense, but can take offensive sort of action. So for instance, just recently Google, their head of their, their security section, TAG tag, sort of, there was a story about them sort of pointing the finger at China and Iran saying, oh, you know, they're attacking the Biden campaign. They're attacking the Trump campaign. And it almost seems like as a private company, they were taking very much an offensive action in revealing a campaign. You know, they, there wasn't a lot of detail, but still, you know, it's in the papers, it's still loud, and it's still a private company that's kind of doing it. So could you, for us, kind of parse down and sort of, you know, broaden, you know, our, like our, the meaning and understanding of scope of action here? Sure. Well, to pick up the example that you've laid out, when you look at a large public disclosure, whether it was the recent tag disclosures about targeting of political campaigns, whether it was the disclosures in 2016 around targeting of political campaigns, or even the earliest of the large public disclosures, the APT1 report uh, by Mandiant back in the day, those are not truly offensive actions. Uh, those are countering actions. They, the use of defensive intelligence to inform countermeasures has a longstanding tradition within the industry. It goes back to vulnerability intelligence, understanding what was actively being exploited in the wild versus what was merely a theoretical vulnerability or a bug that did not necessarily have operational impact, allowed folks to prioritize what they chose to patch, particularly when patching meant taking systems offline and incurring a great deal of costs, as happened in old production architectures and still a lot of those legacy production architectures that we have today. And of course, naturally from understanding vulnerability, you start looking at who's exploiting it, why they're exploiting those vulnerabilities, what they're doing with those sorts of things, and building up that picture. Making that picture public to either name and shame or to change adversary decision calculus does alter the balance a bit. And when we look at that as part of that spectrum of scope of countering actions, it's not offensive in nature. It's taking things that you see in the defensive environment and using them to shape a worldview or to shape a perception of adversary action, particularly if it's been harming you or doing things that are impermissible under what we would hope for as an aspirational international norm. When you look at some of the players, though, many of those players are in the space and have some options that Fall, frankly, fall into some interesting areas that uh, we would consider not merely purely defensive. When they're moving outside of their own networks, when they're moving into areas of uncontrolled, unsecured spaces, whether it's enumerating an open directory, whether it's watching via a unsecured network infrastructure, adversary command and control infrastructure, some of these other technical options that are available to defenders naturally from their perspective, you start seeing some things come into play that really break down this nice neat theory where we've got these nice neat lines. At the technical level, they don't make a lot of difference. It's a natural thing that you can do with often the, the access available just from simply looking at a sample. I mean, how many times have we all seen adversaries embed command and control credentials in a sample? At one point in time, it was entirely non-controversial that a systems administrator, forget even a secure InfoSec professional, would enumerate a connection based on those credentials. 
uh, or look at what was happening over a live connection into their network because they had that visibility. Over time, we started to problematize that. We started to claim that that was a more offensive type of hackback-like activity. Without diving into the entire uh, history of the hackback concept and the literature around it, we tried to reserve for state action a series of things that were entirely normal within the construct of administering a network environment to the point where we've even had some challenges where folks have tried to claim that what would ordinarily be consent monitoring type scenarios, that is, if you're a systems administrator, you have a terms of service for any service you offer to an outside player. And if someone abuses those terms of service, you reserve the right to inspect a virtual machine or look at some other um, action on your system or your network to, to understand what happened and to stop that harm. Some folks have argued that that's even impermissible and tried to reserve that solely for state action. In, in part, that's exceptionally problematic in my view. And in part, all of this struggle emerges out of this struggle from government to restore a monopoly of force or a monopoly on the use of legitimate violence in this space that they have effectively ceded to a variety of other actors. And this places us in a very weird context in the international relations space. We've gone back to a, a early modern period almost where we've forgotten how to think about this, forgotten how to think about actors that are not states acting with state-like prerogatives. So when you see a large endpoint vendor or a large information security company coming out and naming state-level intrusion campaigns, you start in describing the impact on uh, a major political uh, event uh, like an election, uh, you're starting to see a kind of power being exercised that we just don't have a good way of thinking about in traditional political science lenses. And this puts people very much on their back foot. Uh, and at the same time, we're looking at a variety of other actors which are not so constrained. You know, they're not actors not based in the United States, not subject to Computer Fraud and Abuse Act uh, restrictions as we define them within our system of government uh, that act in a very different way. They act both to counter adversary action on the network through counter cyber operations concepts, uh, and they may act actually to offensively degrade adversary capabilities generation. I, I have said for years that there have been more private sector counter cyber operations executed than have ever even planned in any government by the private sector. And the number of private sector actors that uh, have done this in the past and will continue to do this Eventually, there becomes a tipping point where enough other folks have built cyber commands, enough other folks have built state capacity to do these things, that perhaps we will see that balance change. But we can't ignore those private actors, and we can't ignore the ways that that falls out. That's kind of interesting that you, you touch on that, because the lack of vocabulary or the lack of like a conceptual framework, because I started reading, or I started reading and finished Ben Buchanan's new book the i think it's called the hacker among nations the hacker in the state excuse me hacker in the state and it was very much it was very much a good history but at the same time like i'm just reading through it and i'm thinking where's fireeye where's microsoft you know where where's kaspersky where are these sort of big companies that are very much define the security environment because like i like reading through some of fireeye's posts that they've made public it's just like wow you know, they they basically outed a Vietnamese campaign against the Chinese government looking for COVID data. Or Kaspersky, I think, when they basically revealed Android malware that was used to monitor ISIS. I think it was ISIS. 
but it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, could you sort of like as an academic, as somebody who's done academic writing, like why, why is there a sort of lack of conceptual framework? Because it almost seems also like we do have literature on mercenaries. We do have literature on corporations, but we, it almost seems like we're, we lack a literature, a framework, a, even sort of a sort of descriptive basis for companies like for private companies operating in sort of the cyber, like operating in InfoSec. Well, this comes a bit out of where academics come to this space from. And full disclosure, I am a distaff academic in that I came out of government, I came out of industry. Uh, and became an academic, frankly, almost by accident. I am, I, I've worked across multiple of the firms in question, and the realities inside those those companies are just something that most academics have never even seen or experienced. They, it's very difficult to understand the complexities of Silicon Valley. It's very difficult, particularly to understand the complexities of a startup environment and all the pressures of that environment. And then layer onto that, the, how shall we say, the, the secrecy or the uh, non-transparency of the intelligence realm. And intelligence studies is already an overlooked discipline within the academic realm. And then to say, okay, well, out of the vast realm of intelligence, like things one can look at to focus on private entities, um, there have been some folks that have done work on this, um, particularly in the context of mercenaries. Uh, So Tim Maurer wrote a good book on this. Um, When you look at the work of Florian Egloff over in Switzerland, there's some friends that have done some excellent things that they're however, much more needs to be done uh, to conceptualize these as independent actors. And I, I don't want to, I, I, you started your question a bit by looking at Ben Buchanan's work. And Ben was really trying, uh, and I won't speak for him, but I will, I believe he was trying to frame some of these questions in the larger international relations lens, because you have to start there in a lot of the academic circles to make sense of a history that we've all lived through. You've been working in the space. These are cases that we all understand through different lenses and different frames because we're part of it day to day. For a lot of the policy folks coming into the realm, a lot of the international relations students coming into this domain, they did not live it. They don't have a good source of material to even aggregate that case data into a coherent narrative. And I think that that's where Ben did a very valuable service to us all to create a good solid baseline of this. Now, my, my colleague Jay Healy had done a prior bit of work on this um, book called The First Domain. And, you know, between those two volumes, we have The First Domain and then Hacker in the State, uh, really laying out some of those major well-known publications for new entrants to the domain. I tend to focus on the less well-known pub- non-public cases, but we have to have that big, those big tent poles, those big pillars of our domain in order to have this conversation. I mean, it's also kind of interesting, like, you can you can have the ten pole, you can have that broad picture, but then there's there's parts of the hacker history that are just gone. Like I like when people are when I have new people coming in, it's like you know, and you say like you mentioned an, an article like uh, smashing the stack for fun and profit, so something written in the late eighties, early nineties, I think. But like it, it almost seems like there's a large bit of history that was very much on the forums, you know, on Twitter, and it's kind of just being erased. And it almost seems like, you know, we can get the broad picture, but sort of the finer picture is either obfuscated or literally just deleted in some cases. And sadly, that is true. Uh, we, we are a 
technology domain of the new, right? Everything old is obsolete. Everything old is boring, right? And of course, we forget a lot of the insights that those that came before us had. You know, that when, when we look at some of the studies of offensive capabilities from the, the 1980s, there are some amazing insights into how things are secured, how things are broken. Even though the technology stacks in question are completely nothing we would look at today, there's some pretty interesting pieces there. And then there are areas where it really is still relevant. You know, for example, I've done a little work around early intelligence assessments on mm -hmm. uh, communist bloc computing technologies and how we understood the development of uh, Soviet compute in particular uh, for some of their weaponeering applications or some, sorry, some of their weapons applications uh, throughout the 1960s, 1970s, and the 1980s. And those systems, those computers and their descendants still live in certain weapon systems deployed around the world. So we still care a lot more about these things at different uh, echelons than we might admit. But we, we are a field that forgets its own history. I mean, we don't even archive speaker tracks properly to even acknowledge who spoke when at what con. This is absurd, let alone what they said. Now, more and more of this is starting to migrate its way online. It's migrating into podcasts. We're keeping some of these artifacts in a little bit more persistent of a fashion. But like anything else, they su they're subject to bit rot, right? I mean, how many folks keep these artifacts in a service that will even be around in five years? Uh, we'll see. Interesting. So... I kind of want to switch footing and when we think about offense in 2020, we, there, there seems to be two distinct tracks. So you have the traditional network exploitation, you have the traditional, you know, you, you know, send the phishing email, you get access to an adversary's network, you, you know, have an end, you know, install an agent, piece of malware, whatever you have that. And then you also sort of 2016 and going forward kind of made it, sort of more apparent, even though these techniques had already had been in the public eye, but sort of in from what's called broadly information operations. So when we dig deeper on those two concepts, you know, network exploitation and information operations, and they're occurring at the same time in, you know, in the 2016 case, they're occurring sort of to feed on each other and sort of, you know, build off each other. What is it? say about the underlining information and data structures? Like what does that say about sort of the operating environment and the possibilities of action and sort of what is feasible, what is not feasible, what is success, what is not success? Sure. And I think you bring up an excellent point. From the start of formal information warfare theory or information operations theory, we made distinctions between hard cyber of network exploitation, network attack, and influence operations enabled by this new communications medium, whatever name we might give that, those influence operations. For a time, the US government just threw this all together in a corner. We, we said, oh, the weird guys are gonna go sit over here and they're going to do this thing. And you know, we'll, the, the real work will be done in the real world with kinetic things that go boom and things we understand for centuries. The, that corner got a lot more important. And it, along the way, that corner define those parallel paths much more clearly and uh, define them by doctrine and define them by organization. So created sort of specialization, created structural splits, created a, a, a parting of the ways. Our adversaries kept much of this together 
they had unitary organizations. They built much more cohesive doctrine structures, frankly, building in no small part on our earlier writings in the 1990s, whether it was some stuff that friends like Wynne Schwarto had written or Tim Thomas, some of the, even Matt DeVoe, some of the folks that had done a lot of the work in that early period. We now look at our adversaries' high-profile actions, particularly around some of the hack and leak activities. And some folks have started to think that, you know, maybe we ought to have kept ourselves on that original track because we, we don't have all the pieces to even understand adversary action in the same organization sometimes. Um, so we see a lot of new efforts to bring things back into a coherent whole, to go back to the older names, which is, you know, kind of this vicious full circle uh, groundhog day for some of us, but in a way we, it's understandable. I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea, but it's very difficult to make happen. The complexity of any one of these components is already more than the individual human can hold in their minds at once. The scope scale of moving parts for just the defensive cyber mission, the blue information security space, is wider than one could master in a dozen careers. That's why we build organizations, though. This is, we harness efforts for things we can't reach alone. And we keep, as why, we, to why this keeps coming back up, I return to the idea of offensive utility. If one's looking at actions that create effects out of manipulation of the confidentiality, integrity, and availability features of that information, the human mind is often the endpoint of those features. Practically all of human history has been about changing states of those variables. And that's a rather broad statement. You know, we, we, we tend to uh, think in rather simple engineering terms when we try to interface with the messiness of the squish uh, human mind. So when an adversary, adversary achieves success in an offensive intrusion campaign, for example, and has in their possession what were previously confidential communications between political figures, it's natural that they look to ways to create effects in human minds using that information. When we look at the recent high-profile leak and hack operations, this was a combination of experimentation by the adversary, where the adversary tried some things and then doubled down on what works. And also then re rediscovery of an older tradecraft for what the Russians called active measures. Uh, or the Soviet Intelligence Service called active measures. Now, the depth of that tradecraft and its associated case histories are so substantial that uh, my friend Thomas Ridd wrote an entire book on the subject. And he did a great job with it. But one suspects that work only scratches the surface of what we will not yet know. Um, I further believe the entire discipline of international relations and the history of relations between states, their leaders, and their national security and economic interests will have to be rewritten when the full extent of offensive cyber operations in this period are considered. Much as it was impossible to fully understand World War II period without understanding the impact of the ultra-secret, there's a missing dimension driving much of contemporary interactions of states that's simply not being explored. And it's based on that access to non-public material, offensive exploitation of that material from a network or communication system, and then introducing that through various diplomatic, economic, and other political instruments in to change facts on the ground. Sometimes that may be high profile in media, such as we saw in the 2016 case. Many, many times it's only going to happen in closed door rooms, and it's not even going to be apparent that that happened to the participants in those rooms until much later. This is kind of a sort of looking at your previous point of scope of action. It's, information operations is kind of interesting to me because the targeting seems so different compared to traditional network exploitation, because it, it almost seems like, I think the stereotypical example is, you know, in 2016, all the Russians had to do was target, you know, 77,000 people in Wisconsin, or the, the sort of stereotypical line. But it, it, it's very much like targeting and the, the object of the targeting kind of has 
changed. Like, I feel like, like with the introduction of Facebook, with Twitter, like the whole idea, you know, for an offensive operator is that you, you have computers that you can, you know, you put implants on, you get, you know, documents from, but then there's these other sort of social networks and sort of, you know, a completely different sort of graph to look at and to exploit. But I mean, you know, how does that, A, how does that change your targeting and how an offensive actor approaches operations? And then B, how does that change success? Because you've mentioned Thomas Ridd's uh, new book on disinformation. And it was kind of interesting at the end of that book, he had this debate where it was, was 2016 really successful? Right. It was very innovative and very interesting with the GRU and the troll factory did the IRA or whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, like the metric of success, it was really hard to establish because, you know, you have this exaggerated sort of narrative saying 2016 was an amazing, you know, you know, world changing event. But then you dig down into the numbers and it's like, no, they only really reached like a million people. Like it's, you know, a, not a million people, a million sort of hits, right? So it's not even clear what audience they reached. So, so sort of examine that for us. You know, how does information operations change how adversaries target or how they do targeting? And then how, how does it sort of change the metric of success and how we gauge how operations are successful? So when it comes to targeting, Information operations, influence operations used to be a very retail level activity. You had to get in front of a target audience. You had to spend a bit of time with that target audience and you had to convince them of a particular point of view. Thus the entire history of diplomacy, thus the entire history of the public speaker on the soapbox in the square, you know, dating back to ancient Athens or earlier. When you step into the modern era, the first psychological operations came out of the earliest mass media. It, it was a, an attempt to shape perceptions around the battlefield events in a formalized sense in World War I. And then many of those folks uh, later demobilized out of the uh, military services. And in the U.S., they went on to create Madison Avenue in New York and created the modern advertising empire. Uh, that was predicated heavily on the centralization of attention to a small number of outlets <coughs> that could command large audiences. And the larger your audience, the more prestigious uh, the advertising placement or the messaging placement could be. And therefore, the more effective it was presumed that you could shape public discourse, you could shape uh, generally attention. And of course, where this is done in marketing for commercial purposes, uh, you've always had the flip side that it can be done for political purposes. We, we saw during the uh, transition to the early era of live television, the radical impact that the ability to shape perceptions of battlefield events, shape perceptions of events in Vietnam had on the American uh, political system. And, you know, the, this has been a matter of debate for decades. You know, what is appropriate? What is the appropriate role of journalism in addressing these matters? What happens when you have an adversary attempting to manipulate the conversation in certain ways? <clears throat> that targeting tradecraft has always been there. It changes, particularly for certain adversaries, when they're no longer looking at single centralized large communication bodies, when the agenda is not really shaped by a single broadcast network or a single major newspaper. It's shaped by the interactions of thousands of individuals over 
a social communications medium. And it's not solely shaped in these environments, which is where I think people miss. You know, the older legacy structures still matter. And the informal relationships built between different individuals of uh, the same social cohorts matter a great deal. We tend to think that this micro-targeting revolution, this, this advertising technology that allowed folks to reach into ever smaller segments of a social uh, media network's organization was this game-changing thing. And in many ways, it's in the interest of the large Silicon Valley tech companies to, to promote that narrative, in part because a tremendous amount of their value proposition is based on the fact or the, the idea that that matters. I'm not so sure. And this is where we get into that effects assessment question, where in intelligence, any intelligence activity, there's always a question of, did it matter? And you know, we, we, will, we will wrestle with that for generations after any given event. We're still writing about to what extent did intelligence matter in the early uh, Republic of Venice, for example. And you know, <laughs> uh, we, we have different opinions over time. The events of 2016 were very immediate and very raw. And there, is a, there are a lot of folks that have a vested political interest in advancing certain statements there. The idea that that had a lot of impact reinforces the value of political consultants, reinforces the value of political ad spending. And as we know, you know, we, we spend quite a bit of money between different political parties in different advertising medium during a campaign season, during a uh, given election year, to promote ideas about a particular candidate or to advance messages attacking a different candidate. And the, that entire industry rests on the idea that that has an impact on the electorate. It's really unclear that that's the case, even in the best of circumstances, even when it's entirely a domestic activity of proper behavior by ordinary political parties. Now drop an adversary hostile foreign intelligence service into that mix, like the GRU or any of these other services. One, they're coming at it from an entirely lateral frame. Understanding the complexity of American society, if you're not fully embedded in American society day to day, is, is a very difficult task we are more open than almost any other society on the planet. So it's possible. And our adversaries do spend quite a bit of time trying to get their heads around it. But at the same time, they're not exactly as fully aligned as someone uh, that has come up in this environment or as a native participant. And I don't mean native in the sense of native, native having been born here, but a organic participant in a political discourse in this country. Now, the adversary in question clearly failed on a number of points. They, they had some really challenging, immature messages advanced by the bot farms. They had some wonky, very broken technologies that had created recurring patterns that were easy to spot. But to, when you look at the origin of a lot of those capabilities, that St. Petersburg cluster came out of what was effectively a failed set of advertising players in the Russian market that could not actually find commercial Russian market success and were locked out of what was the larger economy of innovation in Silicon Valley. You know, they, they had gotten by, they had had a, they had had some successes in different uh, markets at different points in time, but you know, there's a reason why no small number of related individuals in that cluster of talent went off into the cybercrime underground and a number of the others wound up working in these, these troll farms, these, these troll factories. That's, that creates a very challenging instrument for a state to attempt to engage something as complex as the entire U.S. electorate. And while I can theoretically draw this 
ideal world where this incredibly targeted intervention can change the course of world history and can change the outcome of a U.S. election, I do not believe that that is actually something our society is particularly vulnerable to. It, it, it is a conceit around the fact that K Street matters uh, in a way that, K, that may not matter as much to Main Street. And it's this belief that we are not as resilient as a society, that our core values, our core interests are not known to the players in the way that uh, we've seen over multiple elections, they tend to be. Now, again, I'm strictly apolitical, looking at this solely as a systems problem, changes, our, changes the dynamic quite a bit than looking at it as a, a player in the political system. So I want to maybe um, switch footing. We've already kind of touched on it, and that's the role of private actors and private companies in shaping offense, the offense. And I'm kind of fascinated by North Korea, <laughs> mostly because like North Korea, like through public papers and through conversations, they just they seem to like enjoy robbery and piracy for the sake of supporting their government. So it's not like they're, you know, stealing Bitcoin to support an operation or they're just for self-benefit. It almost seems like North Korea's most of their cyber program, especially the Lazarus Group, seems to be focused on theft and piracy as a way to bolster the government, which is kind of interesting because now, now you're beginning to see sort of a state actor the Lazarus group sort of integrate with various crimeware groups. I think TrickBot is the the public one. And that's kind of a very fascinating dynamic for the offense. Like, so what are the sort of implications of sort of state actors merging with criminal networks in, in that way? So it's not just using a botnet for intelligence purposes, it's using uh, malware and botnet and whatever to for an economic benefit for themselves to as, you know, piracy as the state economy almost. North Korea is a very unique case in one sense in that it's not a state in the sense that we understand states. It is a, it is a criminal regime centered on a family clan and it happens to have a number of state-like functions and occupying controlled territory in a way that we would consider traditional of many states, but it doesn't behave that way in practice. And when you see the actions of its military intelligence service oriented towards that illicit funds acquisition, in part, you can see that as a response to sanctions and a response to their disconnection from the international system due to their nuclear and ballistic missile proliferation activity. And of course, they're attempting to overcome that, maintain the lifestyle of the leadership clan, but also then continue to advance those capabilities that are used to maintain their autonomy, maintain a, a measure of the crisis bargaining power that they bring to the table to, to reinforce their status as a state. But in another sense, it's not actually all that unique to see the blurring of the lines between a state-level offensive cyber program and various criminal capabilities, uh, either as proxy capabilities or as transactionally acquired capabilities. And I, I, I do believe that the interactions with the trickbot architecture, as have been reported by commercial intelligence services, are much more in the nature of transactional. But we can, we can talk about that. We've been grappling with this question for some time, though. The nature of capabilities acquisition and force generation in this domain is different than the models we've had for conventional military options. I believe the best framing was offered by Jason Healy a number of years back, 
where we made distinctions between ownership, direction, funding, tasking, encouragement, and simple mere permissiveness. This framing was intend fundamentally intended to look at distinctions of adversary offensive action as we tackled the hard questions of attribution and the associated tradecraft to do attribution. So it wasn't just a matter of who was the operator on the keyboard, but why were they pursuing the objective? Who was paying for them to pursue that objective or what other benefit did they gain from that? And ultimately, what was the manner in which that activity was leveraged towards a overall state aim? We've seen states attempt to acquire capabilities from the criminal underground marketplace on multiple occasions, again, going back almost two decades now, as well as to leverage criminal actors as proxies for certain deniable tasks, whether or not those tasks are plausibly deniable or, as we often say, very implausibly deniable. It's a well-understood problem, even if it remains an intelligence challenge to unpack in each particular case. But we need to think up at that level of strategic effect. We spend a lot of time debating the origin and proliferation of specific malware and the nature of transactional relationships for sustainment of that infrastructure. And now what one of our colleagues has called access as a service. Where these interactions shape capabilities leveraged by or on behalf of states, it's not clear that the distinctions we draw on the technical side of the house matter that much in the policy sense. We've seen this very distinctly in the recent large-scale ransomware ops, where there is an apparent strategic intent in shaping a destructive option. When that intent holds critical infrastructure at risk, our responses need not be constrained to the law enforcement instrument. Thus, we've had the ongoing conversation during the pandemic about protection of hospitals, particularly when those hospitals represent a critical medical infrastructure that, if lost, would result in much greater numbers of deaths than were, would be uh, needed or uh, imposed by the disease itself. This has led to acknowledgement by the Australian Signals Directorate, for example, that they will take offensive action where needed to counter destructive and disruptive threats. And they do not make in those statements the distinction between criminal actions and the states that may leverage criminal capabilities or criminal-like misattribution fronts to conduct an option of their own. And I think that's an important frame going forward. It doesn't matter where some of these come from, things come from. If you have the ability to hold a source of national power at risk and an adversary is attempting to use that capability in a way that would contravene the normal relations between peaceable states, you're going to see a response. That's kind of an interesting sort of idea because how does the state deal with criminal networks that are related to another state and then how does it, how is that response effective? Because it, it almost seems like, especially with ransomware, it's, it's truly destructive. And at the same time, it's like, there's that framework, as you mentioned, of response. But, you know, we've seen ransomware attacks on Atlanta, on Baltimore. We've even, like, we've seen Netya or not Petya or whatever you want to call it in WannaCry. And yet that response there hasn't been sort of an unequivocal response, at least publicly known. So, you know, when it comes to that sort of action, what is, you know, what is kind of holding back states to react against non-state criminal networks? Is it simply, you know, is it simply like a matter of the FBI and other law enforcement agencies, or is it simply, you know, intelligence agencies like the NSA you know, simply don't have, there isn't that underlying legal framework to facilitate a response. So for a long time, it was a question of policy. 
how we chose to pursue certain policy problems in the wake of major destructive events uh, was often framed by some of our pre-existing assumptions. Uh, for example, when we saw major ransomware incidents arising out of WannaCry, it was a very rapid, rapidly developing problem that came out of the larger Lazarus Group infrastructure. And when it's tied to a nuclear-armed rogue state, one has to measure one's response options very carefully in those uh, situations. There's always concerns about escalation of an incident. There's always concerns about the appropriateness and proportionality and policy maturity of a response option. Now, we have seen attempts to counter, deny, and degrade Lazarus infrastructure in a variety of ways. For example, there was a very well-publicized botnet takedown operation designed to remove some of the capabilities leveraged by Lazarus over time in a way that was framed in very much a law enforcement instrument response. It was a botnet takedown conducted in the, the classic sense we've gone after criminal botnets in the past. That's not always necessarily the case. When it comes to something like Nietzsche or NotPetya, we have a set of concepts in international uh, relations or international law that help us to understand that. For example, if there had been an attack on a neutral shipping organization that had sunk a number of ships, we know how to think about that in the matter of conflict between nations. When a similar amount of damage or actually a far greater amount of damage was inflicted upon the networks of Maersk, it, it's equivalent to sinking neutral shipping vessels as a matter of engagements in war. We did not quite react that way publicly. Now, what may have done elsewhere, I won't comment on either way, but it has taken some time for folks to, to begin to think about how to use these options and how to engage around the problem space. Now, this isn't just a two-player game. This isn't just a mechanism of single action and single response. These are iterated campaigns that take place over time with a number of different players. So anytime you have multinational coordination burdens, it gets more complicated. We, we're still feeling our way into this new space. It is my assertion, along with a number of other folks, that cyber operations are generally less escalatory than we feared when we were writing about them in the theoretical framework. And I, I've got some good reasons to point to that in different ways. But we often talk about under what conditions they are escalatory. This is the focus of Bob Jervis and Jay Healy's work in another area. And for me, it's under what conditions will things begin to move out of control because of matters at the operational level. And that, that loss of control, you know, there, there's various ways we can frame that in conventional literature, but uh, loss of control of these operations becomes very much a key question. The, the scope of conflict or contested operations in this domain uh, doesn't stop with one exchange. Every time one acts, every time one sees an attempt, an opportunity to degrade an adversary's infrastructure, degrade the ability to inflict harm upon our protected networks, the adversary will necessarily learn at given points in time from that impact and they will change their future behavior. So we get into a very complex calculation around cost imposition, around changing adversary decisions, but then also in not teaching the adversary how to be better the next time. This is, you, you touched on botnet takedowns, which was kind of interesting to me because 
Microsoft plays a huge role in taking down botnets. And it, it was kind of fascinating that it is a Microsoft is very much a private actor, but the amount of telemetry and data they collect almost seems almost seems like it's like a state, like in, just in the sense of how much data it collects. So my question is, do private actors like Microsoft, like FireEye, like Kaspersky, companies that are collecting a lot of signals intelligence at a massive scale, do they, do they sort of challenge the state's sort of monopoly over the collection of technical data? Is it complementary? Is it like a rivalry? Because going back to the Microsoft example, they very much seem to um, build upon this, the, you know, the goals of the United States. They target botnets. They target criminal operators. I mean, it's obviously a big boon and a big sort of media sort of play for Microsoft, but it's also they're assisting, complementing. I don't know how to sort of describe it, but they're accomplishing and helping accomplish the goals of the state. So help us sort of examine, like, what is, what is a company like Microsoft's role in this environment? So I'm sure Microsoft would challenge absolutely the assertion that, they, that their telemetry is signals intelligence. Um, we, we can talk about that in a different light. But uh, at the end of the day, they are a huge player in this ecosystem. It is in their interest that the ecosystem be stable. It's in their interest that the ecosystem protect users to do the things users wish to do and not expose those users to harm. Those interests are independent of, but in many ways parallel and complementary to the interests of like-minded nations, um, like-minded states, where we have a, a collection of states that wish to see their populations protected, wish to see the, the security of their people's communications held and protected against adversaries that would uh, deny or degrade them. It is not common to think of a player like Microsoft on an equal footing to a state, but at a certain size, at a certain scale, at a certain level of interest, uh, we, we do have that level of parallel capability or parallel framing. When we begin to look at some of the takedown operations, Microsoft is able to conduct many of these takedowns because they are in a unique legal position. Being such a dominant player, being that they are focused on things that impact the confidentiality, integrity, availability of their operating system and their other product lines, the U.S. legal system has recognized their ability to act against certain adversaries that would impose pain or impose cost on those protected equities in ways that they haven't done for other actors in the system or where other actors in the system do not have as clear an argument. Uh, for example, a vendor may wish to conduct some of these classes of operations, but not being the primary impact entity, it's a little bit harder to make those arguments in U.S. court. It's also one of the few times where the technical mechanisms of adversary command and control and the technical mechanisms of adversary infrastructure sustainment permit a class of option to be exercised through the legal system in those ways. That's not the only way adversaries do business. It's not the only way adversaries are actually effective uh, in achieving their operations. In many ways, there's actually been strong arguments about whether those takedowns are useful or not in the context and construct that they've conducted to date. I happen to think that they are much more useful than many of the other folks uh, that argue against it, even though I see adversaries respond and rebuild capability after a takedown. Well, in, the other side does get a vote. The other side will react once you do something. I don't expect a single decisive stroke to end an adversary. 
but I do think it moves the ball forward. And, you know, we are grateful. I'm personally grateful to Microsoft that they try these things. I think there needs to be a lot of other similar action under different mechanisms. And frankly, we need to move a lot of this outside of the construct of the legal court environment, because that imposes a set of constraints that just may are not necessarily appropriate. We, we frame this as a litigation problem, not as a um, problem of operational necessity. And that's a very different sort of question when we use that lens. It's interesting. Like I kind of, you mentioned like it's, it's questionable to consider what Microsoft collects as signals intelligence. So I want to maybe address the meta question, which is, you know, do private companies like Microsoft, Kaspersky, even Facebook, I mean, do they challenge sort of our definition of signals intelligence? Because to your point and to the point of others, like when I think of signals intelligence, well, I'm thinking of like, you know, bases in Southern Colorado, you know, they're, they're huge satellites, they're collecting, you know, everything, you know, but it's all, you know, generated and collected by the Air Force, by, you know, the NSA, by whoever. But at the same time, like, when I think about how, what data and how Microsoft collects data, it's also vastly impressive. Like, it almost seems like they collect data on every install of Windows, you know, Microsoft Defender. Or if you have Office installed, they collect data, every, every bit of data associated with Office. So logins, whatever. So do private companies and private actors sort of challenge how we define and how we think of signals intelligence in this case? So I'll step away from the sole focus on Microsoft and I'll, I'll go back to the earlier question. For a long time, we considered that government had a monopoly on intelligence. And since the 1990s, we've seen very much subversion of that monopoly, as my colleague wrote almost 20 years ago, as different private intelligence capabilities came onto the scene. Those private intelligence capabilities were often filling gaps that government was unable or unwilling to address. Particularly when we look at the cyber domain, we left bluntly a variety of companies, a variety of individuals to face a global threat landscape, including hostile state intelligence services, hostile military services on their own with very little support. So it's only natural that they turn to intelligence to prioritize defensive investment, to prioritize response, to protect their interests. And when they built these capacities, they are, they are indeed building a source of power, uh, a source of intelligence power that comes from the ability to understand this domain in unique ways. This domain becomes a very interesting place also because for years we've locked everything up under layers of classification and said, you know, only governments and only certain people in certain very specialized places can see events in this domain. And that in many ways is a self-delusion. The folks in the private sector, the folks in the industry had just as much visibility because they owned those networks. They had built the capacity to understand what was happening on those networks, on those systems, and to react to hostile behavior on those networks and systems. We don't have a good term for the kind of intelligence that that is. There are antecedents in the signals intelligence disciplines that translate in this domain very well. Um, when we talk about telemetry, for example, you know, there, there are some things that clearly look like SIGINT in telemetry, particularly when one is monitoring, say, adversary botnet communications. That looks a lot like the particular subdiscipline of signals intelligence known as foreign instrumentation signals intelligence, or FISINT. 
usually FISNT is monitoring things like adversary ballistic missiles that are reporting telemetry back to some ground controller. But at the, at the same time, when you're monitoring an adversary implant reporting to its command and control, you see the parallel very closely. But there's a lot of other things in this domain that aren't anything like that. And in the past, we've tried to, you know, or we've had some commentators try to call things scient or cyberint, which takes a whole batch of disparate disciplines and disparate activities and cram them on under this thing that they, we call an int or a collection discipline. And I don't think that works at all. But at the same time, we are feeling our way into a native understanding of what it means to make sense of things in the environment, to observe the environment, and to generate a kind of new power from those observations. And we're not in a great place to talk about that, partly because when we talk about the subversion of that government monopoly, people get very, very uncomfortable. We, I personally have experienced this from the imagery intelligence space. Back a number of uh, decades ago, I worked uh, with a company that was trying to put up some of the first generations of very high resolution commercial imaging satellites. And some of the first conversations in the policy space around that capability was around shutter control. The idea that, oh, governments wanted the ability to turn off the satellites if they didn't want you to see something. Well, <clears throat> shutter control turns out not to have really worked very well, um, particularly as a number of other states launched their own satellites with their own capabilities. And now we have near real-time imagery of almost any place on the planet in almost any time we need, to the point where it's shaping major crisis activities. For example, we have a uh, batch of naval vessels steaming into a standoff in the South China Sea over some oil exploration activities. And we have near real-time imagery of those vessels moving through the oceans uh, with automated machine learning-based image processing popping imagery up on Twitter. That's a really radical future. When you used to think about the fact that uh, a carrier battle group, for example, moving out in the ocean was something that you really had to spend a lot of time and energy searching for. We have much the same thing playing out in the cyber domain. At one point, it required a tremendous amount of effort to search for even the smallest manifestation of an adversary intrusion activity or an adversary cyber attack. There was a lot of debate over what those attacks were when they did occur. Now we have a lot of folks that have unique visibility and that changes how we have to operate in the space. So I wanna maybe switch footing to the idea of innovating in the offensive space. So, so the period of our podcast has been from 2012, 2013 to 2020. And during that time, we've had ransomware sort of crop up. So ransomware has been with us, what, since 1989, since the AIDS Trojan. And then somewhere in 2013, you know, you, you added this financial component of Bitcoin. And then in 2016, 17, you added this other component of, you know, WannaCry and then NotPetya of the Shadow Brokers leaks and a bunch of other stuff. So my, my question is, you, you know, what do we, how do actors innovate in this space? And what do we consider sort of the key driver of that innovation? Is it, should we consider it technical? Should we consider it operational or financial? Or is it just, you know, a combination of all three? That's a great question. Innovation is a long-standing topic of great interest for military analysis. And um, sitting in a professional military education institution, we care a lot about that. It also happens to be quite a hot topic for government as a whole especially as the Beltway collides with Silicon Valley and folks inside government get a glimpse of what can be built when you move fast, fail early, and iterate often. 
I'm again fortunate to be around some very smart folks that have thought a lot about innovation in various time periods and domains. We've got Wick Murray, who's a historian at the Marine Corps University and has looked at technology and organizational features shaped military success or failure, particularly in the interwar period and in World War II. Our good friend Nina Collars at the Naval War College, who's looked at military innovation through a couple different lenses, notably something I resonate, that resonated very personally with me, looking at hillbilly up-armored vehicles in Iraq. And of course, we can call out the works of Theo Farrell and others. Innovation occurs across the entirety of the spectrum we call the .null PFP, the Doctrine, Organization, Training, Material, Leadership, Education, Personnel, Facilities, and Policy. It takes different forms and manifests from different processes depending on where it falls in the spectrum, where an adversary is capable of introducing innovation, where there's space for innovation in the various aspects of that spectrum and the joins between components of that spectrum. We know from prior military innovation work that innovation occurs most sharply in adversarial contests. This is not an adversarial contest is just about the definition of offensive cyber operations, whether we consider it a contest of intelligence, as is a popular point of discussion these days, or a contest of arms in a new warfighting domain. Um, when you look at the driver's innovation of innovation, you see that there must be a willingness to change. There must be an honest and realistic evaluation of combat realities, peacetime exercises, and future war states. We tend to find that innovation is easier in a decentralized environment. It tends to be easier when organizations are facing prospective defeat, um, but it always is underpinned upon a need or the, the availability or permissiveness that would allow for curiosity about possibilities and the imagination to envision those possibilities of a different way of doing things, a new option in the space. Now, does military innovation theory help us think about cyber adversaries? Not all of our cyber adversaries are military organizations. Some are intelligence services, some are contractors working for those services. Some of those may in turn be paramilitary in nature, but some may be purely commercial in nature. Some may be organized crime and continuing enterprises in nature. There's a lot of different force generation employment capabilities that are brought to bear in this domain. And I personally argue there's a number of unique features to this domain, but when a player takes up the contest of intelligence, the contest of arms in this domain, the adversarial character of this concept, contest gives rise to many of the same drivers and outcomes. So when we start looking at adversary innovation, it's innovation under pressure. It's innovation in this contest. And this goes back to my earlier point about countering counter cyber operations where we are in this contest. A number of the things the adversary has done over time to grow capabilities, to learn new things, to hold new targets at risk, came out of defensive countermeasures innovations. Well, we've reached a point where defensive countermeasures only get us so far. And there remains persistent, sustained vulnerability across the technology ecosystem, partly because we can't remove all of the vulnerabilities we would like. You know, a number of years ago, Dan Gear stood up in front of Black Hat and asked whether vulnerabilities were sparse or were they dense. Unfortunately, I think they're far denser than we had reason to even believe just those few years ago, where those vulnerabilities are profoundly not uh, sparse or profoundly dense, and an adversary has a wide number of options on that attack surface, we have to look at different ways of changing adversary investment cycles to generate a capability and to halt that innovation or degrade that innovation cycle just as much as we degrade individual access or individual exploitation. So, I mean, offensive information security presents a kind of unique, at least what I perceive to be unique, which is 
a lot of offensive innovation is occurring by private companies. So take Metasploit, for example. And then a lot of, at least in the last three years since 2016, has been by leaks, right? So Eternal Blue, Eternal Roman, I always get them confused. But it, it seems like innovation in this space is very much lower cost and more efficient than in other domains. Because I'm also thinking like, you know, for Rapid7 to improve Metasploits, just to use that as our example, it doesn't require a lot of time and money, maybe a week, maybe a month, you know, it to improve a tool like Metasploit is very low cost. Whereas, let's say improving an attack jet or a piece of artillery requires, you know, to use like a sort of hyperbolic example, improving, you know, an F-35 or an F-22 or an F-16 requires hundreds of millions of dollars. So when we, when we think of cyber as a domain and innovation within that domain, you know, how do we think about the costs and the barriers? Like, is innovation just cheaper in this domain and easier? Like, how do we, you know, how do we think about that? So the, you've touched upon a very long-standing debate. You know, we can go back to the works of Dorothy Denning a number of years ago, talking about the barriers to entry in offensive cyber. You know, it, it definitely is not the same as ballistic missile proliferation or conventional arms proliferation or particularly nuclear proliferation, where acquiring a capability and improving that capability over multiple generations is a lot harder. It requires difficult engineering tasks. I won't discount, however, how hard this stuff is. It's one thing to do it with off-the-shelf tooling and, you know, script kitty level capabilities. It's another thing to build an organization capable of generating operational effects at scale over sustained periods of time. You can get some easy wins. You can employ the, the well-derided trash ticks of certain adversaries to get yourself a foothold and to shape certain tactical actions. But welding it together at the level of operational art into strategic effect is a very different thing. And that's where I don't necessarily look as much at, you know, okay, did we add a new exploit into Metasploit or did we change a command and control relay in Cobalt Strike as a measure of innovation? To the extent that, yes, these are improvements to tooling, these are changes in the generation of tooling over time, these are important things to track and understand. The very transient nature of vulnerability, the, the fact that they're not always going to work for you under every condition, that exploits do have a finite shelf life and in, a, in any sort of well-maintained and patched system, we do see a degradation of those capabilities, moves us into a period, into a question, a series of questions around arsenal management, how one deals with scarce and unique access options, and some related uh, matters of the logistics structure by which you ensure a steady supply of those unique access options. One of the reasons you saw so much emphasis on allegedly elite capabilities were it was a parallel structure, a parallel way of thinking about a series of uh, these unique arsenal options that had not been chased in the same way by the uh, wider information security community. But at the same time, you take a step back. I mean. SMB vulnerabilities were a pretty well-known problem when Eternal Blue was released, right? This was, not a, this was not something we'd not thought about. There were other capabilities previously. 
it happened to be a broadly used widespread wormable version of an exploit that got a lot of attention. We have subsequently seen multiple generations, whether it was Blue, uh, Blue Keep or SMB Ghost or other related capabilities that uh, had equal uh, potential effect that just didn't get that same kind of attention in the public space. Now it did in the InfoSec community, you know, no one ignored that, but we also saw the same limited amount of patching done. So I, I won't call that out as truly innovation. I, I'll simply say that is an uh, unusual feature of interactions around certain aspects of the arsenal or, or the potential prospective arsenal that may be held by multiple states. True innovation in the space comes when you see a different concept of operation or a dis different mechanism of employment of those capabilities. You know, I, a, another word exploit, you know, we've got them from, let's just say, the Beijing Olympics, right? We saw a tremendous uh, number of word exploits being generated by a Chinese attributed intrusion set. When I see a new office exploit generated and used in connection with an Iranian intrusion set in 2020, I'm not as excited or I'm not as concerned about the innovation process that led to that exploit because it's a, it's a mechanism of how uh, business is done here. When I see something like the DARPA uh, Cyber Grand Challenge, I do get excited because while that was a constrained test environment, while that was a game, it was the first time we saw true machine level exploitation development at scale and it took about $65 million worth of DARPA hardware sitting up on stage in Las Vegas, right? It was a really interesting moment. And we saw a number of other folks immediately try to duplicate those kinds of capabilities and to chase their own version of that capability in a non-game-like fashion. For me, that's the innovation. And when we start looking at the future of some of the capabilities our adversaries are pursuing, that's the thing we're going to have to be fighting with and dealing with the implications for our ecosystems. So then I'm kind of interested in this idea of relating cost to effectiveness. So, so you mentioned like the $65 million, $69 million sort of hardware that DARPA was using to model sort of um, machine-led exploitation. But at the same time, like it kind of reminds me of like the Iranian like rocket kitten, charming kitten, that that's a whole cluster. And they're very much all about using off-the-shelf technologies, right? So they're using PowerShell, they're using P-Link, they're very much living off the land. So in, in this case, like, you know, and then on the other sort of side, on the information operation side, you look at the IRA, you look at sort of uh, the 50 cent army in China. So, very, you know, relatively very low skilled $15 an hour posters, but they're still very sort of thought of as effective. So what is what is that relationship between cost and effectiveness? Like, is it, you know, is it really a direct relationship or is it just like, you know, it's, there's not a tight sort of direct A to B relationship with that? No, effectiveness is a variable question depending on objective. And typically the Western cost structure is very much um, not the same as non-Western cost structures. I, I can talk about the 50 cent army, but in order to have a 50 cent army, you have to have a overarching communist party structure that has subjugated a population to its will, has transferred wealth from that population at a scale unprecedented in human history, and can 
then drive that population for very low marginal costs on that specific activity. Um, that's actually a far more costly thing than any Western program to generate a, a public media effect or a, a public outreach, for example, from uh, our, our State Department. Very different things. When we look at the troll factories of St. Petersburg, the, what it means to have an oligarchical structure closely aligned with the ruling regime that you know, came out of bluntly a corrupt deal for food procurement and then became this sprawling global mercenary empire. Again, that's a very different cost structure than simply looking at, you know, a couple of failed web developers sitting in an office in St. Petersburg, right? You know, I, it would be the same as if I threw away all of Madison Avenue and I said, well, you know, we'll, we'll take a couple, you know, designers that would otherwise be doing Super Bowl ads and, you know, throw them at a foreign election problem. You know, that, that would cost our society far more. And I, I believe it has cost the Russian people far more than that straight economic comparison might otherwise entail. And when you start looking at those dynamics, you know, what, what was really effect in that sense? Living off the land, moving to the hard technical questions, moving to the hard cyber questions, living off the land presupposes a complex ecosystem that has enabled and allowed for those functions and those features in a given environment. Uh, as we know, all complex technology ecosystems have parasites. This is simply an adaptation of the adversary to become parasitic on those features in a way that pursues their own objectives. That only gets them so far. In fact, a number of the failures of the Iranian intrusion sets over time are directly attributable to the fact that they focused heavily on this living off the land. They did not develop their own unique capabilities. They did not have the right payloads and the right options in waiting to do the things that they were tasked to do. And when it all came apart for them, we saw the limitations of that approach. Again, you can get an access, you can get a certain amount of foothold, you can do some useful things where a defender has not adequately addressed the options for those useful things or where because you're an attacker and you have unique uh, local knowledge of the system better than large complex organizations may. Again, the attackers generally know the system better than you do if you're a defender, particularly in any large organization, just based on time and attention. Uh, they can get certain things done. But when it comes to changing uh, things at that level of operational art or creating that strategic effect, not quite the same. So then... What do you see as in the last like sort of decade or even 20 years, you know, what do you see as the most successful type or form of innovation? Like, what do you, what do you see as something that is, that was absolutely game changing? That was sort of changed the nature of operations of the tactical game, even the strategic game. That's a very interesting question. I think the widespread public understanding that certain targets could be held at risk through large-scale investment of capabilities or in specific capabilities tailored for unique environments was a game changer. We talk about the Rubicon moment when folks first became aware of the payload known as Stuxnet. It wasn't that we hadn't thought about these things previously. It's the first time it became pub that the public became aware that such a thing was possible. I can point to a whole series of other related exchanges where folks began iterating on that idea. 
not on the payload itself, not on anything that was or was not done there. Because honestly, I, I dislike talking about that case because so little of what actually happened there is publicly known. We know only a very small percentage of what likely occurred in those interactions. And while a lot of folks spent a lot of time reverse engineering payloads and trying to put together that story, it's not a great case for us to discuss because there's simply so much uncertainty. But when you look at the range of things that a number of other adversaries have then sought to do following that Rubicon moment, um, you begin to see that cycle of innovation. So when you start seeing some of the attempts to hold industrial control systems at risk through tailored unique payloads, whether it's in Destroyer, whether it's Crash Override, whether it's any of the subsequent variation of experimentation and access options we've seen, we're seeing a lot of folks chasing similar concepts. Again, not, not something we didn't know theoretically, not something that hadn't been in the literature to say, oh, well, of course, an electric grid may be a target. You know, my, my colleague, when Schwartz stood up in 1991, talked about electronic Pearl Harbor, and whatever utility or non-utility that concept has today, we've talked about the lights going off for a very long time. Seeing an adversary experiment and build capability to make the lights go off in a live employment is a little bit of a different question. And I think we're going to see a number of additional examples come out of the tactical military environment in new ways in the future. When we look at Ukraine, for example, the integration of offensive cyber options into tactical targeting, into shaping the battle space, into driving integrated fires against specific Ukrainian units has been often overlooked. The information security community tends to be a little faddish in these things. When an Android implant was found that uh, was related to Ukrainian artillery issues, it became very fashionable to bash on that story. But no one really spent a lot of time understanding what that meant when it wasn't just about the cyber payload itself, about the implants, but it was about the integration of that implant with a robust ISR strike complex that was notable in its successes. We see in some cases the same question come up when, unfortunately, some capabilities related to battle space activities in Iraq and Syria were disclosed under the campaign previously known as Slingshot. That was a very unfortunate disclosure because you know that was a live campaign against a series of adversaries that I think we all universally can agree were not folks that we wanted to see protected by the Western or global information security community. Yet it seemed very popular to degrade capabilities related to that activity, uh, related to uh, the implants used to target the Islamic State or Daesh. You know, we, we haven't quite yet come to terms with all of that. Awesome. So for my last question, and this is kind of a, it's kind of just a singular sort of large question, which is what does the future hold? Like when you, when you sit and you just think and you, you sort of just sort of cast yourself into sort of a predictive role or a sort of a, just looking into the future. Well, you know, what does that hold? You know, what does it hold at the five-year mark, 10 years, 20 years? Because like I think about like just again like from 2013 to 2020, it's just been seven years, under a decade of some of the sort of the craziest, not crazy, but sort of stuff that I had never thought would go from theoretical to practical. And you know, I'm kind of curious to what does the next 10 years, what does the next decade hold? You know, in terms of offensive operations. 
that's always a challenging question, um, particularly from where we stand today. In a, you know, I, I've done a lot of work on the features analysis questions. I've, I've always done it badly. They always say you're supposed to do your features analysis work at the end of your career. So you're safely retired or dead by the time those features come to pass. I've been doing it throughout my career, starting from, you know, the earliest years. So I've, I've been doing it wrong all along. So happy to, happy to take that question. We're, at the inflect, we're in an inflection point of history, both uh, in the post-Cold War, post-reorganization of the global liberal international order. And in the sense of technology futures, where we've, we've torn out a lot of the bones of our society and we've replaced it with the with these new technologies, these new ways of interacting between people that will change our institutions and reshape them in ways that are very difficult to predict from where we stand. In many ways, we're outrunning our headlights, but it doesn't mean we're blind yet. We can anticipate more robust and offensive interaction. And we will see offensive software operations to hold at risk into course. We will see those operations to posture and signal levels below what we would have otherwise considered armed conflict have done in the kinetic realm. We will again see extensive counter cyber operations or more extensive counter cyber operations to contest those offensive options. If we take that, we then say, okay, how do we look at those interactions through a scenario analysis lens? We did a study through Atlantic Council for a U.S. government entity a while back uh, where we looked at different alternative futures that might come out of those interactions. Uh, and we wound up looking, uh, in particular, I worked on two. The first we could, uh, is YCOMF below the belt. Uh, that is the, the classic struggle between um, polities, uh, politics through other means, but conducted outside of the headlines because it was simply so common to have types of offensive cyber interactions and counter cyber interactions <coughs> that it simply no ma- excuse me, that those interactions simply no longer made headlines. It turned into competition and conflict over transient positional advantage as much as the longer term strategic effects because it was such a constant nature of interaction. In many ways, that future is a consequence of an environment in which deterrence has failed, uh, or which deterrence below the threshold of armed conflict has failed, and in which the stakes were only continuing to escalate, where there was no clear off-ramp to move us away from those increasingly militarized offensive cyber interactions. And that's a bit of a challenging future. We also looked a bit about this idea of no-bots land, right? That at some point, Offensive and counter-cyber interactions create very, something very much akin to the trench warfare of World War I, where positional lock-in occurs, where you're unable to gain a positional advantage, you're unable to grant ground, you're unable to maneuver, you're just simply struggling over the same networks or struggling over the same bits of muddy terrain for an extended period of time. And again, that presupposes forward, defend forward operations, actively defending through differing countering efforts, particularly counter-cyber operations efforts, at very high op tempos. Right? And we see those activities in this scenario bogging down under adversary adaptation, under private sector friction, and leading to an unsustainable expenditure of exquisite capabilities. In these scenarios, we see adversary learning and innovation under fire. We see an ever-expanding group of capabilities of private sectors to detect and expose blue force operations to an ever more distrustful technology sector that's exhausted by being caught in this unceasing crossfire. Um, Because some of these entities are not merely uh, players, but they're the train over which these environments are fought, uh, these contests are fought. And that's not a great thing from the perspective of society. The Western way of war is to not 
have the fights occur within your own fields, not have a war to be thrown on your own terrain. You want that to be someplace safely where your civilian populace is not affected. A number of other adversaries do not see war in that manner. So we combined these different features into a composite scenario where we, we talked about the struggle of all against all powers, where we saw a state of risk and friction emerging. And that's a pretty grim future. I don't see a lot of ways out of that at the moment. You know, we can talk about that quite extensively, but uh, there, there aren't a lot of great policy solutions absent something to change the game and to mature our thinking about how to con conduct those operations. I also talk a lot about the idea that conventional foresight approaches do reach a limit, right? Where we can't see beyond certain futures, we've outrun certain headlights, but how can we explore things beyond those, those techniques? And this I'll, I'll call out this idea of fiction intelligence or FICINT. I've been fortunate enough to work with the author August Cole, who's a fellow at both Atlantic Council and the Kulak Center. I was initially skeptical of this FICINT thing uh, because I'm an intelligence officer by trade and training. And we have a specific meaning when we call something an int. Uh, well, Ficken's not an int, but it is a thing. And that thing brings value when it's done right. It helps address this growing imagination gap. We're seeing the possible has become harder as we struggle to even understand what's already happened across this ever-winding landscape. Which brings me really full circle back to a unique mind at a typewriter after seeing an Apple poster dreaming up a world that we're still trying to come to terms with. Somewhere out there is another such mind that will be the next developer or planner or intel officer that will reshape our understanding of offensive cyber operations. And that's the future I'm most interested in finding, the future that that mind is going to see and that that mind is going to shape. Interesting. So thank you so much for coming on the show. That was this is really good. So for everybody, that's JD Work at Hostile Spectrum. Definitely follow him and follow his work. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Of course.